This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I will be reading two short stories by Miriam Allen DeFord Never Stop to Pat a Kitten, which was first published in Weird Tales July of 1954 and The Dreaming Eyes, which was first published in Fantastic Stories of Imagination in January of 1961. I will be pairing this with avant-garde and electronic music from 1961. and blondes with ray guns you just heard todd dockstater's apocalypse part two now we are listening to mario davidowski's electronic study number one both of which are electronic music pieces that were created in 1961 mario davidowski was working at uh, columbia princeton electronic music center at the time of the production of this song. Doc Stutter applied and was rejected from the studio that same year. Usachevsky's official reason was that the studio was overstrained uh, scheduling-wise, but it was suspected that Doc Stutter's lack of academic training was a factor in the decision. Uh, Doc Stutter at the time was producing sound effects for Tom and Jerry cartoons as well as pursuing like avant-garde electronic music. So I um, thought we'd start with a little bit about today's author, Miriam Allen DeFord. She was an American writer that is best known for mystery and science fiction. She was born in 1888, which means that she was 61 when she wrote the first story I'll be reading today. She didn't really start publishing science fiction until 1944, but wrote in the mystery genre as well as for left-wing magazines like The Masses and The Liberator. Uh, She also worked for the researcher Charles Fort, an American writer and researcher who specialized in anomalous phenomenon between 1922 and his death in 1932. Her early science fiction stories were more paranormal stories, but frequently these paranormal stories would be kind of pushed into the science fiction genre or the same sci-fi genre magazines. Uh, So you see a lot of this in like these early weird tales stories, like the first one I'll be reading. Uh, She was also the San Francisco correspondent for the Socialist Federated Press from 1921 to 1956. And, contrib- and a contributor uh, to The Humanist. I'll let you listen to the song for a bit. It is Mario Davidowski's Electronic Study Number 1.
Everything seemed to be normal except that one man and the kitten had vanished. Never Stop to Pat a Kitten by Miriam Allen DeFord. Hanrahan did. Then he disappeared. When Seaforth went back to find out what was keeping him, there was no Hanrahan. The street was light enough to show the fluffy, black kitten, its bright eyes, its back still arched to rub against Hanrahan's leg. Its purr was still on the air, but no Hanrahan. Seaforth went to the corner, looked both ways. Nobody at all was in sight except a couple arm in arm and an old gentleman with a cane. He walked around the horses, Seaford muttered. He was a science fiction writer, but Hanrahan hadn't. He had just stopped to pat a kitten. To Hanrahan, it was the kitten and Seaforth who had disappeared. He looked everywhere for them, but they just weren't there anymore. The street was otherwise exactly the same, except that it was deserted. Hanrahan was one to accept strangeness. He walked on, thinking of the possible improbabilities learned from Seaforth of teleportation. But he was not somewhere else. He was here in his own city, of another space-time continuum. But at a corner was a stand full of tomorrow morning's papers, and he remembered the headlines he had read an hour before of death. But in his abstraction, he walked into a traffic signal, and it was hard and hurt his knee of insanity, which was the most disturbing. But everything seemed perfectly clear and normal to his mind, except that Seaforth and the kitten had vanished. He had mentally painted himself into a corner. He decided to give up and go home. He and Seaforth had only been taking a late walk because it was hot in the apartment and they wanted some fresh air and exercise after a lazy Sunday. Probably when he got home he would find Seaforth and there would be some simple explanation. Even the kitten might be there. It had seemed to have no owner and to be interested in being adopted. Only, why were the streets so curiously empty, even for late on a Sunday night? He saw not one living creature in the mile or so back to the apartment, and not a single car passed him or could be heard on nearby streets. He let himself into the apartment house, and his key worked. The downstairs hall was lighted but vacant. That was natural at such an hour. There was no desk or lobby. The automatic elevator worked too, and so did the key to his apartment. Seaforth wasn't there. Neither, needless to say, was the kitten. Hanrahan went out to the kitchen, switched on the light, and got himself a can of beer out of the refrigerator. He took it back to the living room and sat down to think things over. He could make no sense out of what had happened. He picked up the book he had been reading when Seaforth suggested the walk and opened it a few pages past the place he had marked. Bronowski, The Common Sense of Science. There is not a fact and an observer, he read, but a joining of the two in an observation. And then, event and observer are not separable. But he, as observer, was now apparently separable from all events. He sat brooding until almost dawn, but he did not see or hear anything of Seaforth. At last, worn out, he undressed and went to bed. A moment later, he was deep in sleep. 
Hanrahan woke to a silent world. The only sound he could hear was the one he himself made by sitting up in bed. Instantly, he remembered the night before. He put on slippers and a dressing gown and knocked on Seaforth's door. There was no answer. He turned the knob. The room was empty. In the mirror over the chest of drawers, he saw his worried face. Steady, you fool, he scolded himself. He glanced at the clock. It was ten minutes past ten. He grinned in relief. Monday mornings at ten, Seaforth had a class in creative writing at State. He wandered into the kitchen. Seaforth had been there, sure enough. The dishes from his breakfast were in the sink, and the pot was half full of cold coffee. Mrs. Beck would be in at eleven to clean up. He'd better get himself shaved and dressed and have his own breakfast before she arrived. At fifty with her face, she was still jittery about working in a bachelor apartment. It would never do to let her find him in his pajamas. Lord, what a nightmare that was, he thought as he heated the coffee and made toast. He tried to remember how much he had had to drink the night before. By noon, Mrs. Beck hadn't come, and this was her payday. Hell with it, he grunted, and wrote out a check for her and left it on the sink board and got his hat. He had an appointment for brunch with Rathbone and just time enough to get to the magazine office to pick him up. Hanrahan let himself out and down the elevator. At the corner where the bus stopped, realization struck him like a blow on the solar plexus. There were no autos, no buses, no pedestrians. The street was absolutely empty. He stood staring, fighting panic. With an effort, he choked his terror down. There was a drugstore on the corner. He opened the door and went in. The place was deserted. No clerks, no customers. The goods piled unguarded on the counters. Shaking, Hanrahan made it to the phone booth. He put in his dime, heard a dial tone, dialed Rathbone's number, heard two rings, then the ringing stopped. There was no sound of a receiver being lifted, no voice, just silence. He waited a long time, then he hung up slowly. His money was not returned. Stealthily, as if he were committing a crime, Hanrahan left the booth and moved to the next one. He looked up the number of the public library and dialed it. The same thing happened. Three rings this time, than utter silence, no answer to his queries. He would give it one more chance. All the phones couldn't be out of order. This time, he would call the police. There had been three phone booths in a row when he went in to call Rathbone. Now, there was only the middle one from which he had just emerged. The two on either side of it had vanished. Weak with fear, Hanrahan rushed from the store out into the unpopulated street and stumbled back to his apartment. The living room had been tidied and his bed had been made. Almost afraid to look, he went to the kitchen to see if Mrs. Beck was there. She wasn't. Had she come and already gone again? He glanced at the sink board to see if she had taken the check. The check was gone. But so was the sink. There wasn't any sink there anymore. As he stared, the sink suddenly reappeared, with no check lying on the board, and the stove vanished instead. Then the stove popped into sight, and it was the refrigerator which disappeared. 
Hanrahan waited to see no more. He staggered into his bedroom and locked the door behind him. All the furniture was in its usual place and stayed there. For hours he sat by the window, unable to collect his thoughts. The window looked out on the back of another apartment house on the next street. Nobody showed his presence there, even through binoculars. There was not a sound in his own apartment or in the one next door through the thin connecting walls. At three o'clock, a thought struck him. He forced himself to unlock the door and go into the empty living room. He found a radio station with a news broadcast and tuned in. It was on all right. The announcer was giving a baseball score. So there was no unguessable calamity abroad. If anything was wrong, it must be with Hanraham himself. He went back to his bedroom. He had had no lunch, but he could not make himself enter the kitchen again. Seaforth was nearly always in by six, if only to get ready for a date. At six, Hanrahan left his bedroom once more. There was still no one in the living room. He decided to try the radio again. Perhaps some incomprehensible disaster had been kept off the air so as to not alarm the listeners. But by this time, it might be over and ready to be explained. Halfway across the room, he stopped. He fought down nausea. The radio and the chair beside it had both gone. Back in his bedroom, Hanrahan had the thing out with himself. There was his maternal grandmother who had heard the banshee and could see ghosts. There was his father's cousin who had died after years in a mental hospital. There were the two months he himself had spent in the hospital after Okinawa. Combat fatigue, they called it now, and he had been discharged with a 30% disability. So that's that, said Hanrahan grimly, and reached into the bureau drawer for his revolver. The last thing he ever sensed was the shocking roar. Seaforth searched for a while up and down the street that Sunday night and then decided Hanrahan had simply left and gone home. Hanrahan was getting too damn temperamental, he reflected. What innocent thing had he said to set him off this time? Seaforth shrugged and walked leisurely homeward himself. The kitten scampered away. Hanrahan wasn't in the apartment. Walking off his peeve, presumably... Let him. Seaforth went straight to bed. He overslept and barely had time in the morning to make himself some breakfast and get to his class. Hanrahan's door was closed, and he was probably still asleep. Seaforth was in too much of a hurry to find out. He got back about 12.30, and Mrs. Beck was there. She called to him from the kitchen, where she was washing the dishes. Mr. Hanrahan left me my check, Mr. Seaforth, she said. Okay, Seaforth answered. It was Hanrahan's week to pay her. Doubtless he'd gone out by now. The phone rang. It was Rathbone. Seaforth? he asked. You know what happened to Hanrahan? He's half an hour late for our lunch date. I haven't seen him today, Seaforth said. He felt a little uneasy, but he had an appointment himself, and he had to leave. He returned shortly before six, mixed himself a highball, and sat down by the radio for the six o'clock news. Then he dressed and went out again. There was still no sign of Hanrahan. He got home late and didn't bother to see if Hanrahan was there. 
They were both busy and often went a day without meeting. But in the morning, he decided he'd better check up. Hanrahan's bedroom door was locked. There was no answer to knocking or calls. After ten minutes, Seaforth began to feel scared. He got out a hammer and broke the lock. There was no one in the room. Very late that same Sunday night, when Hanrahan had looked in vain for Seaforth and Seaforth for Hanraham, the kitten's mother slipped out through a basement window and found her young one wandering down the block. She was a sleek, handsome cat, black as Hades. When she caught up with her offspring, she cuffed him expertly. You little devil, she meowed. Where have you been? I told you not to run away again. The fluffy kitten whimpered. I haven't done anything, he whined. The old cat growled deep in her throat. You've been fooling around with any humans? She asked menacingly. No, honest, I haven't, said the kitten. I just walked up and down outside here. You didn't let a human touch you, are you sure? Just one, Mama. All he did was pat me. I remember what you told me. All he did? The black cat swelled with rage. The minute I turned my back, you're the stupidest kitten I've ever had. You make me wonder who your father could have been. Haven't you any sense at all? He was a nice man, Mama, and I didn't ask him to. He saw me and came right up to me himself. Oh, Lord, go on, get to the house with you. What our old lady will do to you, I can't imagine. But why, Mama? The kitten scuttled away from his mother's claws. I see all the other cats in the neighborhood being pet by humans. Why can't I be? It feels good when you rub against them and they stroke your fur. How many times do I have to tell you, you little idiot? You're not just a kitten anymore. Then I'm just a cat. We're a witch's familiars. What's more, we're both specially conditioned familiars. We're curse carriers. If you have brains enough to know what that is. Do you know what you've done to that nice man of yours? From now on, once he's touched you with the spell From now on, once he's touched you with the spell on you, he won't be able to see or hear or feel any living creatures or inanimate things that living beings are using, and no living beings can ever see or hear or feel him. Satan only knows what kind of existence he'll have from now on. And all because you're a little flibberty get it. That disobeyed your mother. Oh, Mama, I'm sorry, mewed the kitten. Please don't hurt me. Honest, I won't ever do it again. Please, please, I said I was sorry. Ouch, he was such a nice man. <laughs> That was Never Stop to Pat a Kitten by Miriam Allen DeFord, which was first published in Weird Tales, July of 1954. This is a sound.
is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Let's see. So, as you heard, we listened to a story by Alan... Sorry, Miriam Allen DeFord. In the background of that, we listened to a composition by Pauline Alvaros called Time Perspectives. Uh, it's a tape piece made with a tape recorder, according to the, the, the liner notes, a tape recorder, voice, and sounds, including soup ladies and a table knife. Um, so Pauline Oliveros is a really exciting person. Uh, she was a founding member of the San Francisco Tape Music Center in the 1960s. And when it moved to Mills, she became its director. She taught music at Mills. And then later, the University of California, San Diego, Oberlin, and RPI. Um, she's, um, you know, a researcher and she's formu formulated. Uh, musical theories about um, focusing your intention on music, talking about uh, deep listening and sonic awareness, uh, particularly on deep listening in 1988 as a result of descending 14 feet into an underground cistern to make a recording, she coined the term deep awareness. And to quote... It is an aesthetic based upon principles of improvisation, electronic music, ritual, teaching, and meditation. This aesthetic is designed to inspire both trained and untrained performers to practice the art of listening and responding to environmental conditions in solo and ensemble situations. Uh, that was in the background of the story we listened to. It was followed by... Uh, Raymond Scott's track, This is a Sound, Alka-Seltzer, Effects, number seven. Uh, Raymond Scott was an American composer, band leader, pianist, engineer, uh, recorder, uh, electronic music inventor. He never scored any cartoon soundtracks, but his music is familiar to millions because it has been adapted for classic and more contemporary cartoons. He also composed jingles for advertisers, hence the Alka-Seltzer effects. Um, now, in the background, we're listening to Hank Battings' Toccata One. Hank Battings is a more classically trained Dutch composer. He's actually better known for his symphonies and concertos. And in, in researching this, I also found a piece that he that someone took this and did this on carillons, which is pretty cool. Anyway, a little more of this music, and then we'll get to our next story. Twice before it had happened, the sudden terror and the sudden glory. Now that it was going to happen again, he loved and loathed himself. The Dreaming Eyes by Miriam Allen DeFord The colonel stood, gazing out of his window at the scene below. He was bored, bored, bored. The revolution on Algol Four was over. The leaders among the rebellious colonists had long since been swept away to slavery in the microlite mines on Titan. All that was left now was the mopping up. Their peasant followers, third-generation colonists, still in debt, to the Federation for their grandfather's passage, 
must be taught their lesson, which meant wholesale deportation to farm labor camps in the frozen north. To make way for fresh workers from the three planets to take over the lands they had forfeited. It was all prefunctory, necessary work. But did it need a full colonel any longer to supervise it? The colonel thought not, but his appeals for transfer had gone unheeded. He was never happy, except in military action. Idly watching as he chewed over his complaints, the colonel's attention was arrested by a minor fracas erupting in the road beneath his window. A sergeant, one of the good tough troops from the regular army, was herding the last of the locals into the waiting trucks. They shuffled slowly along most of them, poor fools, sobbing now that it was too late, but thoroughly cowed and beaten. And then suddenly one of them turned balkly. When the sergeant prodded him in the back, he resisted, stood his ground, refused to climb into the truck before him. The sergeant promptly knocked him flat in the dust of the road. He lay there on his back, half-conscious, staring upward with dazed eyes. The day had been dull, with heavy clouds overhead. By some trick of weather, at that moment a dazzling ray from Algol pierced the clouds and was thrown like a spotlight onto the man below. It lighted his face so that for an instant his eyes seemed to be glaring directly into the colonel's. Without moving, the colonel reached behind him to his desk and caught up his field glasses and focused them. They were remarkable eyes to be set in that dull, peasant face, gray, deep-set, swimming with tears. Naked emotions shone from them, fear, hatred, anger, and a sort of stubborn pride. Then the ray of sunlight shifted, and the man was again only a ragged, huddled figure in the dust. But the moment had been enough. The colonel felt himself trembling. Like a knife in his heart, suddenly the scene was transformed as he was back in a childhood day he had thought forever forgotten in the wooded foothills of his native country, Ontara. They had been three 12-year-olds, the baker's son, the blacksmith's son, and the policeman's son, who had grown up to become the colonel, risen from the ranks. It was he who owned the shotgun, and the others, as was proper, were his satellites who followed him humbly and would be allowed a shot only after he had been given the first chance. The trouble was that there had been no first chance. They had roamed the hills for hours and met no signs of game. They were footsore and irritable and the other two were already whining about giving up and turning back home. Go if you want he told them. But if you do, I'll never ask you out again. I'm staying. At that very moment, a jackrabbit emerged from nowhere and hopped across the field. His gun was up and aimed in a second, but his nerves were too worn and his aim was bad. The animal was hit, but not in a vital spot. It lay kicking and writhing in the grass. He ran to it, followed by the other boys, and picked it up. The bullet had caught it in the groin. The bright red blood splurted from the wound over his fingers. He shifted to wring its neck. It looked directly at him, the flat animal eyes, alive with pain and terror. For a second, they held his own and a strange seizure took hold of him. 
like a long shudder from head to foot. He ceased to be his human self. He became the wounded rabbit. He was shaken by its agony, melted by its fear. He was nauseated, but he could not overcome the flood of feeling. The seizure passed, and he was himself again. He darted a shame-faced glance at his companions. They had noticed nothing. Calmly, he twisted the furry neck until the creature lay limp in his hands. And then, all of a sudden, something else possessed him. Something for which he had no words. A glory, an ecstasy, a triumph. He felt twelve feet high and omnipotent. He took his gun again from the boy at whom he had thrust it. No more, he said. I'm going home. They clamored, and he threw the dead rabbit at their feet. Take it if you want, he told them. He strode away, the gun in his arms, not waiting to see if they followed. That had been thirty years ago, buried so deep it had been lost to memory. Below, the surgeon kicked experimentally at the prostrate figure. It quivered but made no attempt to rise. The colonel stood rigid and immobile at the window, and up from the depths came another hidden memory, the night in the camp on Sirtis Major on Mars. She had not been a woman. She was a Martian female. But in the dark, she had had the same semblance of a woman. He was still only a sergeant then, barely of age, stationed in the army of occupation after the last of the remnant of fighting Martians had been subdued. He had hated the Martians with a fierce hatred because they were what little was left of so old and so alien a culture because of their undisguised scorn for the Terrans who had conquered them because they had resisted so stubbornly and had had to be hunted cell by cell through their underground corridors because they had once had everything and now had nothing it was reason enough they were too frail and reedy for manual labor you could you did whip them till they died but you got no useful toil from them Terra had no troops to spare to keep them on reservations no funds with so much need for military demands on half a dozen planets to feed and clothe them then the soft fools at Federation headquarters put a stop to hunting them strict orders from above forbade their future extermination. What was left of them was preserved as a living museum. The colonel remembered how he had snorted when the rule had been told to him. Scientists came to study them, highbrow idiots, who mouthed words like respect and admiration and compassion, who fed and paid the subjects of their study and had to be protected by the very army they openly despised. The colonel smiled as he recalled how few of the Martians submitted willingly, how often the mush-brained scientists, subversive traitors, coddled by their like at headquarters, that was a better name for them, gave up and sneaked home again to Terra. Baffled and snubbed, their recording instruments blank. The Martians preferred to starve in their underground burrows or to kill their families and themselves when starvation loomed. All but a few so desperate they ventured to roam the domed camps in the freezing night, not to beg, for no Terran would give but to grab at food and run. Few of them escaped. There were sentries to patrol the camps. 
This had been one of those young and desperate that night. Young and desperate and female. But the females were no good, the colonel thought disgustedly. Even for the uses to which the females of conquered people on Terra could be put. They were made wrong somehow, the men said who had tried. He himself had never stooped so low. And why need any soldier with women troops in every regiment? From his post, he had watched the furtive, wavering figure steal through the airlock. Her discarded breathing mask around her neck, glance hurriedly around with her big, myopic eyes without even seeing him standing silent in the shadows and darts to the nearest cook tent. He was at the flap when she emerged again, a loaf of bread and a big sausage clasped to her thin breast. He took them from her roughly and grasped her arm so that she could not escape. She stood there, breathing fast. The arm he held was shaking, but she raised her head and looked him full in the eyes. Those eyes, those strange, light, seemingly unseeing Martian eyes. And that was the second time it had happened to him. How could a Terran who hated all Martians, who spoke reluctantly only a few Martian words of command, become a Martian female? experience all the shame and outrage and despair she had known. But he did unbearably, and to break away from the loathsome response, his body did what surprised his mind. He threw down at her feet the food she had stolen. Still grasping her, his fingers tingled with disgust at the contact, but he could not let go. He leaned and spat upon it. Then he released her and pointed to the befouled bread and sausage, and he said the Martian word for take. He could feel her struggling with her hunger and her hatred, willing herself to run. He felt her hatred yield. He saw her stoop, sobbing the strange blue Martian tears streaming down her face and picked up the nauseating objects. Every iota of her loathing, her compulsion, he shared. Then she turned and ran with her burden, and when she reached the airlock, he raised his needle gun. She fell without a sound, and he left her there, for the scavenger corpse in the morning. And for the second time in his life, he underwent the glory, the power, the triumph. It swept and shook him, and he felt as if light were bursting from every pore of his being. The two memories followed so fast on each other's heels that he had relieved both of them in a mere instant of time, when once again his gaze fell on the scene below the window, it had scarcely changed. Only a moment had elapsed. The sergeant had kicked the prostrate man again and again. He had quivered and lain still. With queer, sudden presence, the colonel knew what thoughts were passing in the sergeant's mind. The Claude was useless, more trouble than he would ever be worth, too old in any case to last long in the labor camp, and now he was holding up the line. Deliberately, he drew back his heavy boot and stamped on the face. The gray eyes, which all the while had been holding the colonel's trapped in them were blotted out in blood still staring at the man below once again the colonel ceased to be himself and became another 
For a breath and a heartbeat, he was that man. He knew all the man's life, the dull, stupid toil, the rare hours of leisure with bread and song among his kind, the blind animal gropings of sex, the narrow provincial piety. Somewhere there had been a wife and children, dead now or slaving in labor camp. Always there had been the only place he knew, the home from which he was being torn today. The colonel experienced his inmost fiber, the peasant's anguish and despair. It made him queasy. He swallowed hard to keep from retching. As he watched, the man died. The sergeant shoved the corpse aside and beckoned to the next man in the queue. With a wrench, the colonel tore himself away from the window, still sick and shivering from his immersion in another's being. He fell into his chair, his head bent to his clasped hands. And then, just as twice before, came the following glory. He wanted to shout, to sing, to tear piece by piece with his own hands some living thing until it was dead. Some corner of his official mind noted that the sergeant must be reproved, even lightly punished. The conquered rebels were government property and not to be destroyed without authority. But the greater part of him was still suffused with that twice-remembered ecstasy. It washed over him and possessed him utterly. His breath came short. There was a tingling in his ears. Light shone before his eyes like a golden aura. Abruptly, he seized the visiphone lying on the desk before him, dialed interplanetary, called for the number of Federation headquarters on Terra. When his superior's frown showed on the screen, he saluted grimly. I'm reporting, he barked, that my assignment here is finished. A captain or even a lieutenant can clean up what is left. I'm requesting reassignment to a more active post. A look of almost animal pain crossed with mingled pride and pleading swept like a lightning flash over the colonel's face. A post, he said, his voice holding desperately to the self-assuredness of the now gradually fading glory. Worthy of the value of my many years of devoted service to the Terran army, he saluted again and rang off quickly before the general's startled gaze should see him revert once more to the commonplace, unregarded drudge he had always been. That was The Dreaming Eyes by Miriam Allen DeFord, which was first published in Fantastic... January 1961. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. So, we have been listening to, since we last spoke, uh, Bruno Moderna's Serenata 3, followed by uh, George Ligeti's Atmospheres, which was performed by the Wiener Philharmonic, and that also was a very, you know, well-known 
track because it was uh, the composition was used in 2001 Space Odyssey and we are currently listening to Christoph's uh, Christoph Penderecki's uh, Salmas all of these pieces are electronic music pieces from 1961, I guess, except for Ligeti's Atmospheres, which is an orchestra piece. It has the same kind of feeling, or... Mm, I don't know. It's an excellent piece of music. Um, I thought I would read you some quotes about today's author, or quotes that she said because she seems like a pretty awesome lady, honestly. So today's author was Miriam DeFord. By the way, this is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM. And today we're talking about Miriam DeFord. So one thing was that there was um, an argument between authors about uh, uh, gender and um, (laughs) a writer, Dr. Richardson, advocated that nice girl prostitutes were needed for tired spacemen in his article the day after we landed on Mars um, and that they would be needed to relieve the sexual tensions that develop among healthy normal males and uh, Miriam DeFord wrote in response to this pretty much they had these like uh, uh, message boards at the end of these magazines where people could have conversations so she wrote uh, I am going to tell Dr. Robert S. Richardson a secret. Women are not walking sex organs. They are human beings. They are people, just like men. I don't know. She's a very sassy lady. Um, uh, She also, though, talks about her experience in... uh, as a female science fiction writer in this period of time, and... She said, some of my science fiction is more oriented towards feminism. For instance, my collection Xenogenesis is all about matrimony, reproduction, and sex on other planets and in the future. She said that she was in one of the few professions where there is no sexual discrimination. She said, I have never heard an editor say, for instance, that he didn't want a story because it was by a woman. No, I should say there is less prejudice. For instance, it's almost impossible for a woman to get a good job as the conductor of an orchestra, but there's no trouble at all about becoming a successful writer, if you can produce. And you see a lot of examples of this where authors like her, who, you know, kind of started out in the mystery genre, but was an excellent writer, getting picked up by these science fiction magazines. And I'm going to leave us here for the day. Uh, In the background, we are listening to Evo Malek's Dahavi. It's a Croatian piece. And stay tuned for more music. I'll see you next week.